Well, hello and welcome to this event, which is part of the US Studies Centre's Election Watch 2020 series with the all-important US election now just a couple of weeks away. I'm Zoe Daniel, former ABC News Bureau Chief in the US, and it's great to have your company this morning or evening, depending where you are in the world. Before I introduce our panel today, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of Australia. The University of Sydney stands on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. I further acknowledge the traditional owners of the country which you're on and pay respects to their elders, past, present and future. Today, we examine what is at stake for Australia, considering both potential outcomes of the election. What difference does the winner make to Australia's approach and national interests? And what's likely to remain the same or change in either a second Trump term or a new Biden administration? Our guests today are Greg Sheridan, foreign editor at the Australian newspaper and one of the nation's most influential national security commentators. He's written seven books. His latest, God is Good for You, A Defence of Christianity in Troubled Times, is a passionate defence of religious belief in a secular age. And Professor Simon Jackman, who's been Chief Executive of the US Studies Centre since 2016 and before that was a Professor of Political Science at Stanford for 20 years, He's a world-leading authority on political behaviour and attitudes. Welcome for both of you. Good to be with you, Zoe and Simon. Thanks, Great Steve. to see Thanks, you both. Sir. Greg, I've posed the idea that Australia's relationship with the US will be very different if Biden wins. Is that a fair assumption? Well, Zoe, uh, look, um, just indulge me for one second. Let me thank the United States Studies Centre for putting this on and it's... Uh, you know, I'd pay a tribute to the U.S. Studies Centre. I mean, Australia is much, has a much richer debate about U.S. Uh, politics and especially foreign policy because of the um, United States Studies Centre, and it's a thrill for me to be part of one of their programs. Uh, I think uh, this election is very consequential for Australia. It's a little hard to um, work out exactly why, because, um, or rather exactly how. The second Trump administration, I predict, would be roughly the same as the first Trump administration, except a little more moderate because, uh, you know, second term presidents lose authority and uh, Trump is more experienced now and um, he won't have the same power of a forthcoming presidential election. A Biden presidency, I think, is very deeply unknowable. There are really divergent strands within the Democratic Party on foreign policy. Um, so you've got hawkish Democrats like Michelle Flournoy and Kurt Campbell. You've got the, the um, Obama retreads who are all about global engagement for its own sake, like Ben Rhodes and Susan Rice. And then you've got the new energy of the Democratic Party, which is all on the sort of the left, uh, the squad and uh, AOC and so on. Uh, I think it's likely that climate change will become the defining foreign policy issue of a Biden presidency. Biden presidency will be very domestically focused. Uh, both Biden and Kamala Harris have been in favour of cutting the defence budget. Biden looks uh, as though he'll be a weak president, probably the weakest since uh, Jimmy Carter. I think you could see um, a much less attentive presidency towards Asia. I mean, John Kerry as Secretary of State under Obama was really not interested in Asia. He was an Atlanticist. The Democrats are the Atlantic Party. The Republicans are the Pacific Party. Uh, and you could see a lot of drift. Uh, they are more sceptical towards China than they were. But uh, I think you could see a less um, focused challenge on Chinese hegemony in the region and more pressure on Australia on climate change. Uh, obviously, there'll be a kumbaya effect initially. The whole world will love Biden just because he's not Trump. Um, and the final reflection I'd make is that we'll continue to deal with a very internally polarised and divided America. I think there's several things in what you've just said that I'll pick you up on as we go. But I think a good starting point for this discussion too is that you've argued that the Trump presidency has been very positive for Australia. Can you articulate what those positives are? Sure thing. Uh, I think the piece you're referring to probably had a headline which went quite a lot further than the actual piece itself. Uh, so 
Zoe, if you again would indulge me just 15 seconds of autobiography. At the last election, I was a never Trump conservative. I regard I regarded then and regard still Trump's behaviour and speaking the way he speaks as completely unacceptable in a modern president. And uh, at the last election, it doesn't matter what an Australian columnist writes, but I, I just regarded Trump as totally unacceptable as president and damaging to Western civilization. Now, over the four years of his presidency, though, I've really striven to look at what he actually does as opposed to what he says. I still find what he says very objectionable. I was speaking to an American Christian friend just a couple of days ago who said to me, I wouldn't let him babysit my children. I wouldn't have dinner with him, but I'd vote for him against Joe Biden. And I think that's the way a lot of American Christians feel. And to some extent, that's the way Australian foreign establishment feels. What has he done that's been good for Australia? He's got a bigger defence budget than any Democrat would have. And you could almost say the single variable that is most important for Australia in any president is the size of the US defence budget. Prior to COVID, he had cut taxes and deregulated and produced a very strong economy. That's good for the world. That's good for America's uh, power because Trump, uh, John Bolton in his book, which is very critical of Trump, argues that Trump nonetheless understands that strategic power arises out of economic power. And so Trump had got the economy moving very, very fast. Thirdly, he was a very good, he has been a good president for us in bilateral issues. So he honoured the refugee deal to take um, asylum seekers from, uh, from Manus Island and Nauru, who uh, Australia was refusing to take, even though he thought it was a terrible deal. He applied aluminium and steel tariffs to all manner of American allies, but not to Australia. He's gone ahead with Obama's marine rotation in, in the Northern Territory, even though it was Obama's program, and he's increased that. So both military and intelligence sharing has gone on. And then if you look at the nations in Asia, which have been most assertive of their national interests and stood up best to Chinese hegemony, Japan, India, Vietnam, Singapore, and Australia, he's had a pretty good relationship with all of those nations. And finally, he's developed the quadrilateral security dialogue uh, to a level it's never been developed at before. And Mike Pompeo has spent a lot of time in the region and Trump himself has had one or two big trips in the region. Now, take that all together, that doesn't wipe out the bad things that Trump does, the way he trashes alliances and, uh, and so on. Uh, one of the big negatives about him is that he trashes multilateralism. I actually don't think multilateralism is as important to Australia as all those bilateral issues. So if you take all those issues together, there is a case for Trump as well as a case against Trump. I think the comment from the person you were speaking to that they wouldn't like to have dinner with him is interesting. I would absolutely love to sit down and have dinner <laughs> with him. <laughs> I, I think that would be absolutely fascinating. And, you know, someone who's observed Trump very closely and rather than seeing sound bites, has sort of sat through hours and hours of Trump press conferences, for example. I think you get a lot um, different nuance and perspective when you actually listen to him in greater detail than just sort of the nightly sound bites that we tend to see. Um, lots there again, but Simon, I'll bring you in sure. um, on the changes that we might see in Australia. I mean, what, what do you think the, the sort of headline things are to watch if there's a change of administration? I think, look, I agree with a lot of the lay of the land uh, that Greg laid out. And, and, and let me thank him, by the way, for his very generous comments about the study centre at the, at the top there, Greg. Thank you so much. And it's great to have you with us. Um, um, I think the single biggest thing has to be China. Um, it is the single biggest issue in the government to government relationship at the moment. The, the single biggest thing that our foreign policy and defence officials are talking to the American counterparts about, and increasingly law enforcement uh, as well, um, you know, when it comes to uh, counter-espionage and, and defeating uh, foreign interference and things like that. So where the United States under Biden goes, I think is incredible 
incredibly important. I, I don't think it is as quite up in the air. There are a few key appointments, and I agree with Greg's got the terrain. I think his reading of the, the personnel and the, the possible divisions inside a Biden administration are things that we're tracking enormously closely at the centre ourselves. Um, I think on balance, though, we remain convinced that the uh, the mind shift that in American strategic thinking that is and will be a Trump legacy um, is, is here to stay, number one. And really the issue concerns the, the MO, the, the, the way that that translates into policy um, under, under Biden. I, I tend to think the Hawks will probably have more power uh, than the Dubs. Um, although I do concede that there is some uncertainty there, and in particular, the pace at which that translates into the policy. That leads us at the study centre to conclude that probably in the short term, policy status quo is probably the, what we ought to expect. Um, I think even Trump's political enemies in the United States say, A, you've rattled China's cage, B, the tariffs were kind of crazy at one level, but having put China on under all this pressure, uh, let's not just back off too quickly now. And so I think, particularly if, if Biden doesn't win the Senate, say Biden wins, if Biden does not win the Senate, then the confirmation process for getting those officials in to prosecute a Biden-China policy, a Biden-Indo-Pacific strategy is going to take a while. And so I would and particularly this very ambitious idea of putting climate change at the heart of American foreign policy. If they don't win the Senate, don't hold your breath is all I'd say there. And that's going to take a while to, to, to articulate. There's a, big, there's a big seesaw effect there too from where we are now. So that's kind of a a large shift, isn't it, in, in mentality to go from well, and, Trump's and, policies and on climate change to that. And, and that's Greg's other point, too. I think our, we all remember the Obama election and just, you know, they gave Obama the peace prize because he wasn't W. Bush, basically. Um, um, there will be this collective um, dubs and, and, and rays of sunshine from heaven sort of feel-good effect in the immediate aftermath. But you know, part of our messaging at the study center at the moment is to inject a bit of realism into say Biden does win. And even if he wins big, there is just this natural policy stasis kind of built into the way American transitions work. And particularly you put that alongside the ambition of Biden putting climate change at the center of its part. That's going to take a while to figure out what that means. Um, and so, so I think that's the single biggest thing that at a government level we're focused on. I think in civil society though, the, the, for ordinary Australians, um, this aspiration about climate change is, is, is extremely interesting. Uh, uh, and, and perhaps away from the security foreign policy side of the ledger, how that plays out in the American domestic economy. There are in fact actually many parallels with the initiatives announced by the Australian government about strategic investments in particular renewable technologies. Um, if, if Biden even gets halfway to the investments he's talking about in climate change, $1.7 trillion over 10 years, there are tremendous commercial opportunities, frankly, um, for Australian interests um, across the board. That, that, that will be a, a monumental Thing. And, again, and again, I think so much depends on how much of the other political institutions he brings along with him as to how much of a reality, uh, you know, we get to see out of what is this incredible aspiration at the moment. Greg, just speaking to the sort of things that you listed in regard to Trump's uh, positive achievements, has prosecuting the position that you have over the period of the administration being a lonely place to be? Uh, no, Zoe, I, I, I couldn't claim that. Um, what I can claim, and but it's I don't, I don't want to sound more self-indulgent than journalists normally are here, is that you can write a certain piece trying to trying to take a balanced view of Trump, saying, okay, look, here are the bad things, here are the good things, and you'll be simultaneously furiously criticised by Trump's 
loyal band of supporters in Australia who, who are a smaller minority than they are in America, but are very passionate, who will write in and say, you're nothing but an apologist for United Nations globalisation. And at the same time, the folks who hate Trump will write in and say, you're nothing but a Trump apologist. So I, I'm not a Trump supporter. He's he's not my kind of conservative. I mean, I, I'm... I'm primarily a foreign editor, but I'd be happy to say I'm, I'm moderately conservative. And there are a lot of things about Trump which are distressing. I mean, I hate the way he speaks about Kim Jong-un, and I think he's, he's risked elements of the South Korean alliance, which is a very important alliance for the United States in this region. But I do think um, the most powerful advocates for Trump are his enemies. Uh, they talk about Trump in such... Uh, an extravagant and deranged way that um, uh, you're, in, you're inclined to, to be more sympathetic to him um, uh, the, the more you hear them. Yeah, it's interesting you should raise that this um, perspective that is floating around that if you vote for Trump, you're a bad person, um, that you, 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 your moral compass is off. Um, and I'd like to ask both of you sort of how that resonates. Does that push people away from Trump or, or towards him? Because it does seem, as you've sort of intimated there, Greg, that for some people it will be in his favour rather than against. Well, I think that's right. Uh, um, there is a deep division all across Western society and, and we all express it, in a sense, through American politics. I, uh, I was on a, a panel at the Jaipur Writers' Festival in India on Trump a, a year or two ago, and there must have been a 1,000 people there, and they couldn't get into the hall. People were queuing up, and there was a very fine Indian strategic analyst, but he's hardly a, a household name, and a guy who writes occasionally from the New York Times. But everyone had passionate views on Trump. But the American who wrote for the New York Times was saying, you know, Trump is the worst president in the history of the United States, blah, blah, blah. And the Indian was saying back to him, look, that's your business. That's the American Civil War. It's got nothing to do with us in India. He's the president of America. We have to deal with the president of America. And from our point of view, he's been very good. He's called out China. He's very realistic about Pakistan. He supports um, a greater military-to-military -military cooperation with India. And so... Raja, who, who's participated in US Study Center's uh, uh, functions, he was the strategic hardhead who was taking Trump seriously <clears throat> as a strategic actor. But at the cultural level, this uh, sense that um, it's illegitimate to be a supporter of Trump is a big factor in motivating Trump voters. And I'd offer you this last reflection here. I, I read a number of American Christian journals. I, my last book was about Christianity, so I spoke to and read a lot of American Christian material. Their debate at the last election about whether to support Trump or not was very sober and hard-headed and conscientious. In the, the, the better journals, thing, uh, journals like First Things, uh, they didn't have any starry-eyed view of Trump. They would say look, Trump is not one of us. Trump is not going to lead a moral regeneration of America, but he is going to support uh, appoint Supreme Court judges who will not contradict or abridge uh, freedom of religion rights. He is going to uh, provide funding for, uh, for Catholic schools in particular, but also uh, uh, other Christian schools. Um, he, we, we believe in a strong defence. We believe in patriotism. He's not going to embrace the sort of woke left liberal uh, hatred of Western civilization. He's going to make a big deal of freedom of religion internationally, and he's done that. He's appointed an ambassador for religious freedom and made much more of an issue of it than previous American presidents have. And the alternative was Hillary Clinton. Now, I parted company with those folks. I didn't think Hillary Clinton would be too bad. I think Biden represents a Democratic Party, which is three or four standard deviations to the left of Hillary Clinton. And from my point of view, therefore, much more unsatisfactory. And when Hillary Clinton says of those voters, they're all deplorables, or when Barack Obama says they cling bitterly to their guns and their religion, 
Well, that just tells them that Obama and Clinton despise them, and so they go with Trump. Now, Biden is, uh, I think, has moved a long way further to the left than where Clinton was, but he doesn't do that sort of uh, culture war stuff, so he doesn't enrage them as much. So what you've just said, though, about particularly the Christian community and, and evangelical Christian community who supported Trump in spite of their misgivings about him, doesn't that go to the exact criticism of those who are saying, well, people who support Trump swallow their ethics on various things in order to win just so their uh, niche needs are met. So in the sense of evangelical Christians, the Supreme Court, religious rights, abortion, uh, for example, even though, you know, in their heart of hearts, they, they don't support the way that he behaves, the language that he uses, etc. Well, Zoe, um, you know, you could put it that way, and that, that's, a fair, that's a fair assessment. But um, on the other hand, I think every time you vote for a candidate, unless he's Abraham Lincoln, uh, you make compromises. And uh, in, in all these Christian journals, they're saying, well, it's a binary choice. So are Trump's moral defects so overwhelming that any good thing he does counts for nothing. And um, some of the concerns which you, you describe, I, I sure, sure you, I'm sure you don't mean this in a pejorative way, as niche concerns are critical concerns for Christian voters. For example, if, if you're a conscientious evangelical or Catholic Christian and you believe that, um, say, late-term abortions is the taking of innocent human lives, well, if you're voting on that issue, you're not voting to gratify your own prejudices. You're voting to defend human rights. Now, that may be they may be completely wrong to view the issue in that way, but that's what they're doing. They're, they're motivated to defend human rights, which they see as being more likely to be defended in that area under Trump than the alternative. And if the alternative was Harry Truman or Franklin Roosevelt or Ronald Reagan, they'd vote for the alternative in a heartbeat. But uh, the alternative was Hillary Clinton in 2016, Joe Biden in 2020. Biden and, and Kamala Harris have said that, well, Harris certainly very explicitly said, and Biden has gone along with it, that they're uh, in favour of... Um, you know, uh, abortion at any point in the in the pregnancy. Now, I'm not saying this is a big issue for me. I'm not saying it's not either, but I'm just trying to analyse it for Christians and uh, similarly, all the other concerns they have. So I think for them to make an unbalanced decision to vote for Trump, I think is not morally degenerate. It's just that this is where they think the balance of their issues lie. But I, I think you'd find very few who would say, we think Trump is an exemplary person. Thank God we have such a wonderful person to be, um, to be president. Simon, I'm curious about your views around um, that sort of pushing to the progressive or conservative in, because of that language around Trump and this perception of being a good or bad person, depending which way you vote. I mean, you know, as we look at numbers and polling, uh, in the lead up to an election that's a, a couple of weeks away. Is that an issue? I mean, is that a factor? <laughs> uh, it is in, in the sense there's, there's two things going on. One is a longer term uh, secular trend. Um, <laughs> secular and <in, laughs> just say a long term trend uh, towards uh, uh, polarization in, in American politics. Um, since Oh, since really about uh, Ronald Reagan, but it really gets a kick along uh, with Bill Clinton. But every successive president since, just take one indicator, the approval rating of the president inside the president's party versus the approval rating uh, given to that president by uh, partisans of the, of the out party. That gap, that partisan polarization and approval ratings has gotten larger and larger and larger over every presidency. So by the time we get the Donald Trump, it's it's at eighty five points or ninety points or something. It's ridiculous and and um, perhaps about eighty points. Um, and it stayed there for, for the entire presidency. So 
what we're seeing now to some extent is there is a Trump specific element to it, but it's also, I think this has been a long time in the making in the United States for, for a variety of reasons that, I, that I, I won't get too much into right now. Now the Trump specific thing is, is, is fascinating um, because on top of that longer term trend, you graft the extraordinary personality uh, that is Donald Trump. He is, he never held elected office before winning the president of the United States. He is a, a person that has traded on controversy and notoriety in, in a tabloid kind of way for, for 30 years. He, he was a reality TV star. Uh, it was his single greatest accomplishment really in the public eye uh, before. And it still is. And, and, and you've put that kind of a character, the way that that person instinctively doesn't even have to think about it. It's just in his DNA at this point, wakes up in the morning from, from that first moment of consciousness. And, I, and from, from all accounts, the guy sleeps three or four hours a night or something. But um, from, from the first moment of the day to the last moment at night, this media provocateur uh, being his stock in trade, he almost doesn't know how to do things differently. And that's been both a great strength for him in terms of blasting those other Republican candidates off stage and getting the nomination. It's perhaps been a pretty terrible model for governance. Um, and then we fast forward into the pandemic and now we're in the middle of this election. And, and what Trump has, has, has just riled so many people up on both sides of politics. The, the last election, Zoe, 2016, we had historically high levels of undecideds as the American public tried to make up their mind between two candidates with, it, with historically high negative ratings. And so a lot of people, even this close to the election, were still saying they didn't know before. Then when the hunt did extre extremely well with that group, particularly in three or four upper Midwestern states where the election was decided effectively. Mm -hmm. Fast forward four years after seeing that model on display, um, people have made up their mind about Trump and, and, and certainly vis-a-vis -vis Biden, who, who, you know, despite Greg saying Biden is presiding over, over a Democratic party that's three or four standard deviations to the left of Hillary Clinton, um, Biden himself is not seen um, as, a, as, a, as a radical agent. Um, Biden is seen as, a, as, a, as a, quote, you know, the perennial safe pair of hands, uh, proverbial safe pair of hands. And, and there are historically low numbers of undecideds now. Emotion always plays. This polarizing is very functional for the American political system with its system of non-compulsory turnout. Revving people up and getting them voting and volunteering their time uh, and all the other things you need in American politics, particularly early voting and those long lines, all the rest of it. Uh, the level of personal commitment and, and fire in the belly uh, is just at another order of magnitude above what we see in Australian politics. Trump has both been the beneficiary of that, um, but now I think precisely because of the, his hostility and, and the visceral reaction to, to his record as president, I think it's turning around and, and part of why you're seeing these incredibly long lines, um, people can't wait to vote against him. And yet you sent me some numbers uh, a few days ago <laughs> around potential margins of error. And I think, you know, it's probably been well stated that there've been some improvements in the way that polls have, are being done in the intervening years between 2016 and now. But, you know, can you just give us a yeah, snapshot sure, sure. of that? So this is work that we first put out at the study centre. We put it out and we had a piece in the Australian on it um, about a month ago now, but something I update literally twice a day. And it's the following. You take these sort of Nate Silver type methodologies that I helped develop back in my earlier years as a, a political scientist, um, these poll averaging algorithms, if you will, you look at their performance in 2016, state by state, and you take exactly the same methodology and apply it to the 2020 data stream. And what do we see? Well, what we see is almost identical leads in the polls for the Democratic candidate. So right now, Biden is leading Trump in about five or, fee, uh, five or six must-win swing states by exactly the same margins at this stage, right, two weeks out, basically, that, that Clinton was leading Trump. 
And, and my, my only point is to say, um, given the tractor tire marks I have on my back from 2016. With uh, me old, too, like, <laughs> We all do. Yeah. Um, 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 but but uh, in particular, um, the, 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 the point being, boy, oh boy, if you were, look, if you were right now confidently predicting um, a Biden win um, on the back of these poll averages, you are essentially signing up to the following. The polling industry has got us act together after 2016. And I don't know that for a fact. Um, I suspect it'd be hard for them to think they'd be doing worse than they did in 2016. But, but I, I sort of any, I think our confidence, at least, might be the more modest way of putting this point. Our confidence that Biden is cruising to win here, I think ought to be really, really tempered by the bitter, bitter experience uh, for those of us who are taking the data at face value in, 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 in 2016. Yeah, just a quick anecdote on that. I was travelling in Western Pennsylvania and Ohio at about this point before the 2016 election. And of course, Hillary was up in Pennsylvania by, I think it was 5.6 points or, yeah, or yeah. something akin to that. Yet everyone that we were speaking to was voting for Trump. So for me, that's the seed of doubt that's constantly in my mind of not making assumptions. Let's bring it back to the Australian situation. Greg, I have an audience question saying that you've asserted in recent columns, one of which I read, that the Australian national security community would uh, favour Trump or at least be um, sort of at ease with, with a Trump presidency. This question is suggesting that, that that's untrue. Do you kind of stand by that assertion? Sure, but let, let me add a let me add an I got Trump anecdote wrong. I got Trump wrong <laughs> anecdote. Uh, election American election days were always incredibly exciting for me at the Australian, as you can imagine, as I'm sure they are for Simon and for you too, Zoe. <laughs> but, you know, I, I sit glued like some figure from science fiction, watching four TV screens simultaneously, and. Uh, and uh, the 2000 election was incredibly exciting where Gore won and then Bush won and then nobody won. I wrote three successive front pages uh, uh, before I got out of the office. And last time I offered to one of my editors two prospective pieces. I said, look, I can do a piece for you about what the first 100 days of Trump would be like, or I can do a piece for you telling you that Trump can't possibly win. This is all over. It's done and dusted now because Hillary couldn't win the popular vote by the amount she's going to and lose the Electoral College. And my editor said to me, uh, oh, look, well, don't do the Trump piece because that'll be meaningless an hour after the election is finished um, because Trump will have lost. So, uh, so write the Hillary's got this, you can take it to the bank piece. I wrote that, put it, the paper put it on the front page. And then the next day I had to write a subsequent front page groveling apology to my readers saying, well, boy, did I get that wrong, you know, and uh, I had to fess up immediately on the front page. So, you know, take everything I say with that amount of confidence in, uh, in my track record as a predictor. But, Zoe, on that piece, uh, so I didn't assert that the national security establishment has a clear pro-Trump bias. What I said was, I can almost give it to you verbatim, Trump may be better for Australia. That is a widely, if semi-secretly held view in the national security establishment. Now, the Australian national security establishment is full of very hard-headed people. They can see all the negatives about Trump. They can see all the positives. Same with Biden. There's a very strong case to be made in favour of Biden. He'll restore the American system. He'll appoint competent cabinet secretaries. They'll get on with the job. They'll run the thing in an orderly way and so on. There is also a danger that Biden will be a retread of the very ineffective second Obama term. And I think the idea that he's going to make climate change the heart of his presidency sends chills through Canberra. I mean, Barack Obama viciously sandbagged Tony Abbott at the uh, Brisbane G20 meeting with a very, very partisan climate change meeting uh, speech, which he didn't tell Abbott about in advance. The administration did not tell the Australian government about in advance. Now, Abbott... The Abbott government had been the most helpful government in the world to Obama. They'd offered troop support in the Middle East, everything else. And Obama kicked him in the guts for the sake of another media op. 
just for the sake of another media op. And then, of course, Biden, Biden's own record in the Obama administration is pretty poor. If you read Robert Gates' memoir, Gates, a very fine uh, defence secretary, and he wrote, I think, one of the very best cabinet secretary memoirs I've ever read. And he says, Biden is a lovely bloke, but he's got every single strategic matter wrong over the last 40 years and not a single issue that he's got right. And Gates has a lot a lot to, to back him up there. I mean, most recently, Biden opposed uh, Obama um, taking out Osama bin Laden. Uh, and then... You look at Bob Woodward's books on the Obama presidency, and he says very explicitly, when Biden started talking at National Security Council meetings, he would often lose his train of thought. And people got so impatient with him that the president used to cut him off quickly. Now, this is not a model of a president who is a natural fit for the Morrison government in Canberra. Let, having but said just, that, to, just, to, just to sort of question that a little bit, though, um, is that a lesser of two evils kind of situation? I mean, Trump is a pretty outlandish uh, president, as we know, innately. You've sort of put forward the view that perhaps we'll see a more stable second term of Trump. Um, yet you mentioned John Bolton, who spoke to Simon a couple of weeks ago, and he actually put the reverse point of view that, in fact, the second term of Trump could be more chaotic because he doesn't have to face re-election. So he's kind of off the leash. So then part of me says, well, is the preference for a continuation of uh, Trump doing outlandish things or for some sort of more boring approach under Biden, even if it's um, not as perhaps decisive as a Trump administration is? So the reason I was outlining those thoughts about Biden really was to answer this question about what the national security community in Australia thinks about the alternatives. And I'm just making the point that they think that there are potentially a lot of negatives with Biden and potentially a lot of positives. And it's quite unknowable. These are two candidates whose term in office is quite unknowable. Biden is plainly lost his cognitive fastball and the critical thing with Biden will be who he appoints. Mm -hmm. So the nature of his presidency, personnel will be policy. Now on Trump, so I've read Bolton's book. I know Bolton a bit. I've interviewed him in the past. And, uh, uh, you know, it's a very powerful case against Trump, a very powerful case. Although, again, if you read the Woodward book on, on Trump, the, the latest book, Rage, and if you read uh, Biden's book, the, what Woodward disagreed with in Trump was two things. He, he disagreed with Trump's failure to get organised. That's important. And, if, and Bolton is very critical of what he calls the axis of adults who came into the Trump presidency at the start and tried to frustrate Trump, whereas they should have tried to give effect to Trump, uh, to Trump's, um, uh, you know, outlook and political uh, political vision. It's interesting, too, Woodward's treatment of Mattis, Jim Mattis's uh, resignation from the Trump administration. Mattis resigns because Trump takes some troops out of Syria. But that is what Trump promised to do. This is democracy, after all. Trump was elected president, not Mattis. And Trump promised to take troops out of the Middle East. And he kept his promise. And that's why Mattis resigned. Mattis didn't resign because Trump uses foul language or sometimes doesn't pay attention to his presidential daily briefing. But I would disagree with Bolton in Bolton's proposition that the second Trump term will be more extravagant than the first. And uh, a lot of the national security establishment in Canberra also have this view. Uh, Trump will be fully constrained, as he is now, by Congress and the courts. The, the Republicans are certainly not going to win back the House of Representatives. They may hold the Senate. If they do, it will be on a knife edge. He will be further constrained by the desire to avoid impeachment. Trump does not want to be impeached. And if the Republicans lose the Senate, that becomes a slightly greater possibility. Also, every second term president I've ever covered, and I've been following them very closely for 45 years, has been less powerful in his second term than he was in his first term, partly because he can't threaten anything about the forthcoming election. Now, I, I think also Trump will want to avoid jail and criminal charges after he leaves office, and he'll want to build a legacy 
and he'll want to build some goodwill. Now, of course, it is quite possible that Trump will go bananas and be crazy. But on the other hand, um, the Canberra establishment, as I outlined before, feels that they've got quite a lot of good things out of Trump. Probably nobody has managed Trump better than Scott Morrison. Maybe Shinzo Abe has done a better job and maybe Benjamin Netanyahu. Yeah, yeah, but they would, be, they would be the three the three leaders. Now, we will not have as privileged a position with a Biden administration, which will be loved. All these Europeans who hate Trump will love Biden and they'll be competing for his attention and he'll be putting on state banquets for them, whereas Trump hardly has a really close friend internationally, and, and Scott Morrison is one of those. So I don't suggest for a minute that Canberra is 100% in favour of Trump and 100% against Biden. But there is a widely, if semi-secretly held view, which is what I said in my article, among national security people, that on balance, Trump may well be better for Australia. I want to get to that um, relationship between the Australian government and a potential Biden administration. But first, Simon, I'm curious as to your read on how Canberra is feeling about yeah. this. I mean, you move in these circles, you, you talk yeah. to these people. Um, is Greg right? Uh, yeah. Um, in, the, in the main, um, I, <laughs> you've got to be able to hold two ideas about Donald Trump and the United States at once, and maybe even more than two. And one thing that Donald Trump has done, I mean, we can give him praise as Greg did for getting the quad going and, and all this sort of stuff. But in, to, to no small extent, that is a reaction by Alliance partners on this side of the Pacific to Trump. <laughs> um, the Australia-Japan relationship, for instance, under Trump, has tightened up immeasurably. Uh, uh, John Lee describes it as a, an alliance in all but name only now. I, I, I would probably share that assessment. Um, um, Trump has blown, you know, they say there are no uh, China doves in Washington or Canberra anymore, but there are no alliance sentimentalists either. One thing that both what's happened with respect to China's progress under Xi Jinping and what's happened with the United States under Trump is that it has prompted, I think, a sort of a new quiet, um, but a new steely-eyed determinism in Australian strategic affairs, broadly thinking. Um, uh, the, the DSC, the Defence Strategic Update, uh, us uh, accelerating our trajectory to 2% of, of GDP on defence spending, um, the Australian government will never buy billboards by saying China made us do it or our, uh, our um, sort of this volubility out of Washington is making us do it. Um, um, but those are important factors, number one. But number two, I think it, it is in the US interest too, by the way, that there'd be this greater, we have different words for it, resilience, sovereignty, capability, self-reliance, autonomy in not only Australian strategic thinking, but our, our capabilities and, and, um, and, and, and relatedly our, our resolve. And I think above all, that's what Trump has done. I, I think that would be the biggest thing, sort of a change in the mindset and sort of a, a bit more spring in our step strategically and perhaps even operationally, number one. Well, and two. also, sorry, sorry to interrupt, sorry, sorry. Yep. We, we've had, you know, media is one that's had to become more nimble and under Trump, but also government, uh, diplomats have yep. had to sort of shift the way that they interact, come up with new approaches because the administration is different, um, not the usual. So yep. would would people be... And, and by this, I mean government, be feeling a little bit nervous about the prospect of reverting to something more traditional yeah. uh, where you have to go through official channels to so, interact. And so exactly. So two things on that. One is, I think there is a version of a second Trump administration um, where the, the, the high volubility was the first two years and it's now a little more settled. On the other hand, um, Trump is furious with China over COVID uh, and perhaps even in the lame duck should he lose or in a second term, what might a Trump 
and, and to use Bob Woodward's title of <laughs> rage and enrage Donald Trump do um, with respect to China. I think that that's a, that's a sort of a short term to medium term question to, to grapple with. Uh, so there's that. On the other hand, Biden, okay, so yes, I think there will be a bit, uh, a lot of love displayed back to, um, to alliances more broadly. But I, I don't think we should underestimate uh, the earlier point Greg and I were both making, that is the, the now, I think, permanent or enduring change in American strategic thinking about the importance of the Indo-Pacific, the magnitude of the China threat, and the impeccable uh, reputation Australia enjoys in Washington. We are the ally of choice. We are on the front lines with respect to the China challenge. We have lent forward uh, on that. Everybody in Washington, of consequence, understands that. We go into that, say, a Biden administration where you're right, everybody will be, will be back saying, great, it's a new normal, business as usual, and Australia drops down the rung to a sort of a, a more middle tier uh, in terms of our importance and relevance in Washington. I, I actually think that is a little bit overstated precisely because Washington is so animated by China and so understands uh, the importance um, of, of an ally like Australia uh, at, at this particular moment. So we've got about 15 minutes left and I have about um, 100 audience questions. So <laughs> let's, let's try to get to just a couple of those. Greg, Stephen Loosely from the US Studies Centre asks, why does Joe Biden have more endorsements from prominent Republicans than any previous Democratic candidate for president? Zoe, it's a good thing, isn't it, that I've completely conquered my Fidel Castro tendencies to give eight or nine hour answers uh, here. Um, so look, that's a fascinating question from Steve. Um, and I really, I must say, I really appreciate Simon's insights here. And, uh, you know, I, I hope Biden does represent a new tough-minded consensus on China. I was a little disturbed early in the campaign that Biden was running some anti-China ads and he got criticised by Fareed Zachariah and Peter yep. Beinart and a few others, and, and he pulled them out. So that'll be interesting. But I think Simon is probably right that there is a new consensus on China. So many Republicans endorsed Trump because they felt, as I did in 2016, that he is an unacceptable uh, person. The way he behaves is unacceptable. So, But I'm a journalist, and I just try to deal with reality. And, and uh, some of the things he's done have been good. Some of the things he's done have been bad. A lot of the things he said are, are true and they're things that no one else would say. I mean, he is very impolite in the way he says NATO partners uh, are stingy on their defence spending. But it's certainly true. It's certainly true. And a thing can be true even if Trump says it. But <laughs> let me offer a final sentence to... Um, to Steve's question, which I think is a key question. Trump both is a symptom of and a cause of quite a big change, and to use Simon's word, sort of a secular trend, so to speak, um, in centre-right politics around the world. Centre-right parties are abandoning their old faith in the free market. You see that very much in the Scott Morrison government uh, in its response to this pandemic. We're all about secure supply lines, rebuilding a manufacturing industry, government subsidy where necessary, strategic intervention in industries. We've already seen that with our defence industry. You certainly see that in Boris Johnson, even before COVID, levelling up uh, the North. And you see Johnson uh, aiming for those labour electorates in Northern England. You see the Morrison government representing the poorest electorates in Australia, winning seats in Tasmania and rural Queensland. And you see it in Trump winning working class votes in Michigan and Pennsylvania and West Virginia and so on. Now, the old style of centre-right politics, which included the national security establishment, which had a very strong faith in free markets and was not that interested in economic nationalism and, in truth, didn't really try to represent the folks uh, who've been, if you like, the losers of globalisation, that is changing all around the world. Mm -hmm. And a lot of uh, people who were traditional centre-right people find that a very uncomfortable change. But conservative parties now are going for that working class vote. And the final thought 
I think Simon's insight was very acute earlier that America is in a deep process of polarization. There was that magnificent book nearly 10 years ago, Coming Apart by Charles Murray, which mm -hmm. shows that Americans are even living in ideologically yeah. and culturally segregated suburbs. And politics is partly swinging on cultural hostilities as well as traditional economic and geostrategic securities. Now, I think it's a pity that so many of those national security Republicans came out and signed letters against Trump because it meant Trump had nobody to appoint when he came into government. And that there have been Asian governments. Another thought is Trump has done much better in Asia than he's done in Europe. There have been Asian governments asking those Republicans to sort of retract those letters so they can go into a Trump administration and people it, uh, you know, with competent officials. Let's whip through a couple more of these questions. Frederick Chilton asks on China, isn't there a risk regarding legacy in that Trump may want to do a tremendous, in capital letters, deal with Xi, which might disadvantage Australia? Yeah, yeah I, I'd agree with that. That's part of the uh, unpredictability uh, quotient uh, there. But right now I'd say the, again, I keep coming, coming back to the word rage, um, if, if Trump is elected, uh, re-elected, uh, or uh, look at that period between, say, if he is uh, defeated uh, in, in the so-called lame duck period, just keep an eye on that space. Um, somehow I doubt that running off and cementing a trade deal with Xi uh, is, I think, I think it's punitive and retributive, uh, is sort of the mindset Trump has with respect to China, at least uh, for, for the time being. Simon, I'll stay with you uh, because I want to put something to you that Greg wrote uh, in an article recently saying the virus is not Trump's fault, talking COVID, obviously, but whereas polls still show Trump leading Biden handsomely on who would manage the economy better, they show mm -hmm. him way behind on who would manage the virus better. A bigger majority condemn Trump's handling of the virus. Now, Greg also contends that Trump is running on four issues who is best to revive the economy, law and order, China and Biden's manifest weaknesses. So with that in mind, is that statement uh, around the economy versus the virus still true? Oh, it may be true. It's just not relevant. Um, and that's the point of this election. It, it's, it got taken away from Trump in the sense that either we can, you know, whatever caused it, and we can say the president himself did it or China did it or whoever, but it's about COVID. And any chance of it not being about COVID ended when the president himself was diagnosed. Game over. Um, he's got really only one kind of narrative path I see, and that is uh, fighting, you know, Biden's incapacities or infelicities or unsuitable. You know, he's too old and, and, and is feeble. That is perhaps still on the table as an available campaign narrative. Um, but this idea that I can rebuild the American economy, just like I, I, you know, the economic management I displayed over the first three, three years of the presidency, that no one's, no one's receptive to that narrative. No one, no one's whose vote is up for grabs, at least, I think, is, is, is receptive uh, to that narrative. It's interesting, isn't it, that it took a global pandemic for Trump to lose control of the conversation because he's otherwise had control of it largely. For the last It'll four be, years. It, it's, it's already something where everybody's starting to, to that style that I alluded to earlier, um, uh, ultimately reality <laughs> uh, intercedes and um, the ability to uh, just disrupt your way through a crisis, uh, even through engendering another one, uh, the, 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 real, the real world uh, magnitude of the, of the of the virus and and the response to it seems to have overwhelmed Trump's prodigious abilities on this score. Greg, uh, another audience question: Dimitar Berberu asks, why does Australia blindly stick to the USA, which is going down, when we're so close to Asia, which is going up? Why why are we so obsessed and interested in the United States? <laughs> well, that's that's a great question, but. Uh... Let me offer just a, a one-sentence thought on the last COVID topic. I agree absolutely with Simon on that. And um, before COVID came along, I thought Trump was very well positioned mm -hmm. for re-election. Nothing was inevitable, but I thought he was very well positioned mm -hmm. for re-election. The economy was going so well. 
His approval ratings were high by his standards, about 47%. And um, I even saw David Axelrod on CNN at that time saying, yeah, he thought Trump would be re-elected. And what has astonished me is how clumsy Trump has been in his response to COVID. He hasn't been as bad as the Democrats claim, but he has been very, very clumsy. And it's also astonished me how clumsy he's been in this campaign. I think he hit his straps in the last few days, but I thought his uh, tactics in the first debate were terrible uh, by his standards. They just were ineffective. They didn't put Biden under any real scrutiny. Biden didn't have to string the two sentences together because Trump interrupted him every time uh, every time he began. So, But I think Trump has got his groove back in the last few days, um, so it'll be fascinating to see. And also, even though uh, he's doing this in a COVID-unsafe way, there is always something about the energy of a candidate. Biden was at home resting for a day this week. He took a whole day off campaigning, 16 days out from an election. Trump, as usual, was having his 68,000 events, 4 million tweets, you know, going bananas. He is certainly a high energy uh, candidate. I still think the, you know, Biden is well ahead and I, I'm not suggesting Trump is going to win, but I, I'd agree it's uncertain. Why do we stick with America? We stick with America because it's overwhelmingly in Australia's national interest. interest yeah. uh, we, uh, the United States is by a vast distance the biggest foreign investor in, in Australia. So our economic relationship with the United States is bigger than it is with any other nation. Trade, especially the sort of bulk commodity trade we do with China, is very impersonal and does not involve a uh, deep level of trust. Whereas investment, putting your dollars subject to someone else's law and then putting their dollars subject to your law, that's very big. Secondly, we are a nation of 25 and a half million people in a region which has the most populous nations in the world. China at 1.4 billion, India at 1.3 billion, Indonesia at 250 million. It, it is also a region which has a burgeoning defence uh, spend all across the region, which is going to host, what is it, 60% of the world's submarines within a few years. We've seen double digit growth rates in Chinese military spending every year for the last 20 years. Uh, the, the great strategic discontinuity in our time has not come about because of Donald Trump. It's come about because of Xi Jinping, who has changed fundamentally the geostrategic, political and social trajectory that China was on. Now, we have always wanted, as with many other nations in Asia, Japan, South Korea, Singapore, Vietnam, many, many others, to have a very big United States uh, economic and geostrategic presence in Asia to produce that stability and to even up the scales between a plainly hegemonic China and the rest of us. Now, our defence capability, no matter how much we spent, we could not get the defence capability we get through being an ally of the United States. We get first-tier, world-beating defence technology. We get intelligence all the time, and I don't mean even what spies are telling each other, but what the satellites are telling us about a potential adversary ship leaving a port. We know about it all in advance. And then the final point I'd make, although there are a million others, one of the many ways that we have influence in Asia is because of our influence in the United States. So Indonesia, where I've spent a great deal of time, has almost no traction in the United States. It doesn't have a diaspora community. It doesn't have big industries. When it wants to get something done in Washington, one of the uh, key assets it has is the Australian embassy and the Australian government, because our status as a close US ally means we can go to the president, the secretary of state, the congressional leaders and say, look, to help us as an ally, we need you to do this for Indonesia. Now, that's, that's a crude way of expressing what is a subtle and pervasive element in Asia. Asia is not interested in post-sovereignty notions of multilateralism or anything else. They understand power and they understand that we are very influential with the biggest power in the world. That is a huge asset for us in Asia. So it's never a choice between Australia. Do you go with America or do you go with Asia? 
And the final point is we're not shy of disagreeing with America. Yeah. Uh, the, the Abbott government joined the Asia Investment Infrastructure Bank run by China against the wishes of the Obama administration. Uh, we, uh, Malcolm Turnbull, revived the Trans-Pacific Partnership with the Japanese after Trump turned mm -hmm. away from it. We're part of the Paris Accord. The United States is not. So there's no, uh, I think, you know, it's just not true to say we always go with America. Guys, we could go on all day and all <laughs> night, I'm sure. But thank you so much for your insights just a couple of weeks before the election. Our guests today, Greg Sheridan, who's the foreign editor of the Australian newspaper and chief executive of the US Studies Centre, Simon Jackman. And Simon, I'll hand over to you to close. Um, thank you, Zoe. And Greg, thank you so much uh, for giving Thanks us an hour of your time today, long overdue, um, and, and particularly that, that last answer, Greg, uh, it looks like you've been reading the annual report of the US Studies Centre, um, picking up on a lot of our big themes um, uh, as well. Um, um, so, so look, um, Zoe, always a pleasure to have you with us, keeping uh, Greg and I in check today. <laughs> Couldn't have done it without you. Uh, and um, the other thing to say is just to tease this amazing event we've got coming up. Um, Joe Hockey, uh, our former ambassador in, in, in uh, Washington, of course, former treasurer of the, of the Commonwealth um, uh, and graduate of the University of Sydney, I should add, but as a distinguished ambassadorial fellow with us at the US Study Center. While he was in Washington, one of the amazing things Joe did was develop this deep network of uh, friendships um, all through Washington, but especially in the Trump inner circle, uh, something I saw firsthand. And I've asked Joe if he could reach out to former uh, acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney. And Joe's done that. We've got Joe in conversation with Mick Mulvaney. That is going to be an amazing event. Um, that's coming up in just uh, two days time, everybody. That's Wednesday this week at 10 a.m. Uh, Australian East Coast time. Uh, and our thanks in advance to Joe and to Mick for that. That'll be, that'll be a remarkable uh, conversation. Uh, someone that close to the president of the United States. Um, but until then, have we got anything else to tease, Janine and Mara in Sydney? No? We're done. <laughs> okay. Um, you can always catch up with our past events, uh, catch up. Everything goes to audio or to YouTube very, very quickly. Thanks to the team in Sydney for that. And um, look, we'll see you Wednesday uh, for the conversation. Uh, with Joe Hockey and McMulvaney. Until then, thanks again to Greg. Thanks to Zoe. See you next time. Thanks, Zoe. Thanks, Simon.